At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, serve Yahweh, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin the sermon. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have given us your revealed word, and we ask that your spirit guide us, that only the truth be spoken, and the truth be spoken with boldness and to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, Sovereignty in Motion. We're going to see the motions in play, or at least play out in our text today. But I'd like to get to ask a question to get your minds thinking about that topic of sovereignty. And the question that I pose is, and I find it interesting that in God's providence, this topic came up this Sunday in light of what has happened through the week. The question I pose is, who comes to mind when you think of a modern day person who carries the title of sovereign. Isn't that interesting? I think most of us would think of Queen Elizabeth and that whole monarchy that the English have. Maybe some of you were even considering the newly titled King Charles III instead of Prince Charles as we have known him from across the pond. Let me pose something to you. Have you ever considered the irony of any human being ever carrying the title of sovereign. How can any human being ever control, ever have the power and authority to control everything within their span of rule of their kingdom? There's no way. It's, it, there's, it's an absolute impossibility and yet we refer to them with the title of sovereign. It's interesting. My father has, has taught me this. I have heard it said by many, uh, and a Christian older than myself, I am learning it myself as we walk, as I walk through time and space. And that is one of the, the sweet blessings in life is as you grow and as your life continues, you start to realize how little ultimate control or sovereignty you really have. As a young man, I thought it was all in my hands. And as I age, I realize, thank God it's in God's hands. He ultimately controls. Oh, I'm not saying we don't have responsibility, but it is a peace to our hearts to realize that God is the only sovereign, and we all make lousy sovereigns, though we try. 
Well, today we are going to see what true sovereignty looks like, and hopefully we will rest in knowing that God's sovereignty is true, good sovereignty. If you'll take your bulletins and turn to the back where we, I have the uh, sermon outline, I want to make sure that we all have the takeaway. This is where we're marching forward to this point. Hopefully by the end you see this point more clearly than where we're going to state it now at the beginning, but at least you know what we're marching to. The takeaway is this. The Lord's sovereignty is always in motion in your life, practically bringing about your salvation. And what salvation is your salvation? It's speaking of not point-in-time justification, but sanctification salvation. So we continue on. Sanctifying you to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be reminded of. That's the truth that we need to see in these scriptures as it applies personally to us. That is the scripture that will give us comfort in our hearts. That truth, I should say, we will see the scripture bore out from that truth. But that truth is what brings us comfort in the midst of what is God doing? I heard that, that question posed twice this week, once by a Christian and once by a non-Christian. What is, what is in the world is God doing? And they were referencing their life. Today we will know at least more clearly what God is doing, or at least be reminded of it. But before we move forward, we need to be reminded of where we left off in this series of plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt. If we don't know the bigger picture, when we get to the 10th plague and we've taken a little bit of a break, as other men have preached, and we've left Exodus for a, a, a season, so to speak, we're back there again. So please turn over to Exodus chapter 10, verse 27. And we're going to read 27 through 11, 9 to get our feet firmly planted so we know where we are when we're dealing with the 10th plague. So let's look back to the ninth plague, Exodus 10, 27. This is the plague of darkness that has just taken place. Again, it says, but Yahweh, and every time you see the word in all caps, you're going to hear me or, or Pastor Pete or, or one of the other men that might be up here refer to that as the Hebrew word, Yahweh. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them, referring to the, the Israelites, go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Let me give you the long version of that. In other words, what's going on in the background as he's saying those words? What is he thinking potentially? As you command, in other words, as you say, as you command, you who thinks you are sovereign still. Really, I will never come into your presence again. He knows there is another, that is Moses, knows there is another plague. And so Moses' words will echo in Pharaoh's ears. We continue on in chapter 11. And we talked when we went through chapter 11. Notice it says the Lord in your Bible. And again, I'm going to use the word Yahweh. But then it, in the ESV and many other versions, it says Yahweh said to Moses. Based on the verb usage, based on the understanding of what's happening here, it's better to understand it as Yahweh had said. This is Moses putting in an explanatory paragraph. 
He's interjecting this, this into here so we can grasp it. But this is something that, had, that God has already communicated to Moses. So let's l- listen to this. Yahweh had said to Moses, Yet one more pl- pl- excuse me, plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And I want to add in here, even though Pharaoh doesn't want complete driving away to take place. We're going to see that played out tonight. Uh, excuse me, this, this morning. Let's continue. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. You can see that chronologically there's something amiss here. He's stating something that has has already been communicated. And now, the next paragraph, he's going to pick up again. He's still, Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, you'll never see my face again, or you will die. This is where this next paragraph picks up. Let's see how Moses responds to that statement from Pharaoh. So Moses said, and I'm going to refer to this as, and it's neat for you to see, to see this early on because he's going to tell us at the back end of this paragraph, but you have to know this is Moses. Is, he's, he's going to give his response with righteous indignation, righteous anger towards this counterfeit of a sovereign who is saying, oh, I know what's going to happen. And he's like, you know nothing. You are no God at all. And so there is an angry disposition as this, this counterfeit tries to take the, the position as sovereign. So Moses said, thus says Yahweh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Interesting. He, remember, he just told Moses, you're going to die if you see my face again. Moses is responding back, oh no, the sovereign was going to bring death. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. In other words, Yahweh is no respecter of social status. From the top of the status to the bottom of the status, the firstborn of every family will die in Egypt. And all the firstborn of the cattle, and we've talked about this before, some of you are new to this. This is the understanding of decreation. Yahweh is not only sovereign and moving forward in time, Yahweh is so sovereign over all the false gods of Egypt that he can work his judgment, that he turns back what he did in creation as a form of judgment. So cattle, the beasts of the field, were, were created by God on the sixth day along with mankind. So who is included in the punishment? Cattle, the firstborn of cattle, along with Egyptians, are going to, to die as we see God showing, oh, I am the only creator. I am the only one who can bring judgment through the reversal of what I did in creation and bring death and encapsulated in what he did on a particular day. So we see God bringing judgment through decreation. We continue on, verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will be again. And then he deals with this 
polemic argument. There's a, there's a duality going on in this a plague account. A polemic is a, an argument against. It's an attack against. And it tells us in, we've already seen the scripture that says that when, God, when uh, Yahweh brings forth this tenth plague, it is a judgment upon all the false gods of Egypt. So the polemic is, you'll notice the wording is used so that the ears of the Egyptians and the, and the uh, Israelites, those of the ancient Near East, would know these terms and would know what they reference, though we don't, ref- we don't understand them. So let me give you some reference to this. So let's begin with this, this polemic. He says, but not a dog. Does he mean an actual dog? I don't believe so, and many theologians don't believe so. Again, when we were back in, in, in this particular, uh, this, this was spoken of before, again in chapter 11, we're in chapter 10, uh, excuse me, we're in chapter 12 with the 10th plague, that there was a false god whose name was Anubis. He was the false god that when you died, he was the embalming god of the Egyptians. And he would make sure that you pass through this, this, this river of death and would make it successfully to this place of heaven. This god was, this god Anubis had a human body and a canine's head. This god should have power over life and death. So when he says, when, when Yahweh says, but not a dog, he's referring to this false god who is powerless. God continues, Yahweh continues to show he is the only sovereign. Not e- but not a dog shall growl against the, any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Oh, the children, the firstborn of the Egyptians will die. But Anubis is powerless to, to cause the, uh, the, the, any, any harm, if you will, any death. Remember, he, Pharaoh's always looking for his his gods to bring uh, a replication of the plague. Anubis cannot do that. He cannot make the Israelites firstborn die. They are not under the curse because they have the blood over the threshold, the blood of the sacrificed lamb, which pictures the blood, the coming blood of the sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And we continue on in verse 8. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me, speaking of the people of Pharaoh, and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went, in other words, I will go out from your presence when I am told to go out by God using your own people to send me out. In fact, we're going to see today, not only does he use the servants of Pharaoh, he uses Pharaoh himself to send out Moses on the Exodus journey, the journey of salvation, physical salvation, removal from the bondage of Egypt as slaves. In verse 9 there, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then he uses the word that. And it, it might be helpful for us to say, In order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God is using judgment as a way to say, I am superior to all the false gods of all the nations, not just the nation of Egypt. I am the only sovereign. And so now we see this, we we start our passage today, and we note that Yahweh has prepared this day, this plague, this 10th plague, to put the powers, his powers on display to the world, not just Egypt, 
but it will take complete sovereignty of the created world to pull off this last plague as it has every plague. You have to be completely sovereign, perfectly sovereign, to pull all these things off in exactly how you predicted they would go in that, and in that timing and order of that prediction. So we first look at the downward motion, Yahweh striking down, it says. The, the, the sovereign downward motion of judgment. That's the picture. That's what downward is capturing here. So let's look in Exodus uh, chapter 12, verse 20, 29. At midnight, Yahweh. And in the Hebrew, it's emphasizing Yahweh. It's emphasizing that which is the agent of the action. At midnight, Yahweh struck down. In other words, he took the life of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. And here we see the words changed a little bit, but it's the same truth coming through. To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Before it talked about the slave woman who was, who was on the mill or at work in the mill. And now it, the wording is talking about the captive in the dungeon. It's talking about the foreigner in another, from, from another land that has been held captive from battle, and he, he is in, it's interesting, it says dungeon in our world, in our wording, in the wooden sense, the word, wooden use of these words in Hebrew, the word is in the house of the pit. It was the, the prison cell, the dungeon, oftentimes a cistern that was hewn out for water, that they no longer use it for holding water. It has this, this rock uh, base around it. No one could, could get out of it, and they would stick you in the dungeon. And you, this is that, that greatest to the least identified again. Again, Pharaoh is referenced with his throne, and now you have this idea of the one who exalted it above the earth, and you have the one who is all the way down into the earth and dwells in the earth. It doesn't matter to God. All, from the greatest to the least, receive his judgment. If, if they hold on to a kingdom other than the kingdom of his people, the Jewish people, those are the ones, those holding on to the kingdom of the Jewish people, they will not see this death of their firstborn, the Israelites, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out in the actual Exodus even further. Yahweh's judgment against evil is no respecter of persons. From the greatest to the least, all who chose to be a part of any kingdom other than the kingdom of God's people will experience the final judgment of physical, which is what we see here, and we know as Christians, the story goes on, and spiritual death. We know that reality has proven to us through the prophets of the Old Testament, and we see realized in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Well, now let's look at the upward motion. Pharaoh rose up. God's judgment coming down. Pharaoh rising up. There's a difference in direction happening here. Moses is using some, some wording that should cause us to, to think, oh, there's, there's some opposition going on here. There's some, some, some crashing of the two, so to speak. Mankind's foolish upward attempt at sovereignty. And so we look towards verse 30, and we read in Exodus 12, 30, and Pharaoh, in other words, the most powerful human being 
head over the most powerful nation on the earth at this time, the one whose religion identifies him as God incarnate from the God Ra, the invisible God in the heavens, that this Pharaoh he's dealing with here. So, and Pharaoh rose up in the night. And what happens? He and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. In the Hebrew, the word is bayit. And bayit means house or household. Some of your translations will, I think, more properly, more helpfully translate that household. There is not a household where there is not somebody, a firstborn, who is dead. It's not that every individual house experiences, because there are people that are potentially just married, that are not of the firstborn. There are, there are, there are uh, relatives that have never married that are going to be part of another uh, physical house. Ah, but every household, every genealogy of family, that has a, every one of them has a firstborn in it. Thus, every household will experience the death of the firstborn. So we see that, that played out here. There's also a contrast. In, in Exodus 2.23, it was the Israelites. The, the word is, is the same. It's the Israelites who are crying out. And they are crying out to a God they don't know very well, but they, it is the God of their forefathers. And they know that. And so they cry out, hoping that something is done, action is taken. And we see the beginning of the plague shortly after that. In this situation, we have the Egyptians crying out, but their, cry out, their crying out is inconsolable. There is no one. This is the tenth and final plague. There is no God to save them. Yahweh, through each of the ten plagues, has demonstrated his sovereignty over all of the false gods of Egypt. Theirs is an inconsolable cry for help. When we look at what Pharaoh's actions entail, as we, we, I, I mentioned before, man's foolish upward attempt at sovereignty, we see Pharaoh rose up to, to put a stop to God's actions. Halt! Stop! We can't have any more. This nation is in ruin. But Pharaoh's own people know that he is helpless to stop Yahweh. Pharaoh has nothing to offer. Certainly Pharaoh rose up to acquiesce, that is to reluctantly comply with God and release his people. That's clearly communicated. But there's also more going on in the background here. There's more as it relates to, has he completely given over? Is he like, that's it, you're sovereign, I'm not, you're God, I'm not, man, I'm trusting in you. No, that is not what's going on. You have him acquiescing, that is, reluctantly complying, and you have him still rebelling. Look, look at, let's take a, a closer look at this. Our first clue is pointed out in Pharaoh's opposition and physical motion. That motion we talked about, Yahweh strikes down and Pharaoh rises up. It's picturing a confrontation that's coming. That's why Moses, is, we believe, is using these words. So we see just in the words he uses, he's, he's letting us know that there's still confrontation on Pharaoh's behalf. 
Yahweh's motion is downward, while Pharaoh's responds with an upward opposing motion. Pharaoh is going to intervene for the purpose of damage control. My kingdom is in destruction. I will take action to stop the ultimate destruction. Our second clue is in the Hebrew words used that Moses uses to command the exodus. Remember, we saw this back and forth. Every time that God says, let my people go, he uses the, ter- the term shalach. And every time Pharaoh uses it, he uses the term halach. In other words, he, we, these two words mean go. But because of context, and because context is what we have to use to understand defining or how these words are being used, we understand that, wait a second, every time Pharaoh uses it, he means, I'm not going to let completely let go. This is a temporary letting go. And God is commanding, shalak, let go. Let them be gone. Let them continue out. They are going to be, this is going to be a one enormous exodus of these people, and they are never coming back. Well, this is still taking place, this back and forth of what Pharaoh says he will do, when even with the command of it. So there's our, our second clue that there's still rebellion in the heart of Pharaoh. And then lastly, our third clue is pointed out in Pharaoh's manipulated attempt at gaining favor with God. And we're going to see that borne out, those, those different clues borne out in our next uh, verses, in verses 30. Uh, 1 and 32. So let me ask you a question. Well, first let me give you a, a, a lesson, a takeaway, so we don't move past this point without getting a, a takeaway. Evil and its minions, I'm giving evil kind of a, a global understanding. Evil certainly is the evil one. There's a person that's ultimately evil, but I want to give a general sense to evil. Evil and its minions will always try to hold on to any semblance of sovereignty. You need only look in our society. Evil does not want to give up its power, its authority to rule, to control others. So now, let me ask you a question. What was the objective of God's sovereignty? What was the purpose? What's the end game? What's the goal? Why is God demonstrating his sovereignty in this way? There's many answers, or at least I should say there's multiple answers. But we're going to see here that there is one particular answer that he's dealing with in this text. He uses it elsewhere, and he brings out these different aspects and why he's using his sovereignty. But in this text, there's a track it's running on, and we're going to take a look at that. And that's in point number three there, the outward motion. The Israelites went out. God is demonstrating his sovereignty in and through the physical salvation of his people. He covenanted with Abraham and said, I'm going to do this. You are going to see this captivity take place. For 400 years, you will see this this inaction. And then you will see that I will be the God that will free them and send them out to the promised land. And this is a covenant that God has made with these people. And we see that God has, is fulfilling that covenant through these plagues. And he's using the plagues certainly to show his glory over and gain glory over the false gods who are not sovereign. But for this particular section of text, he is showing that his sovereignty is being used to demonstrate he is the God that can bring about 
ultimate salvation. There is nothing that can stop the sovereign from bringing about salvation. So let us look at Exodus 12, 31, and 32. We'll see the back and forth, and then we'll gain, and we'll, we'll take a, a final look. We'll end up our sermon today looking at, how does that affect me? What, what does the physical have to do with the spiritual reality that Christ brought? So let's take a look at the text first. Exodus 12, 31, and 32 states this, and he summoned Moses and Aaron. We see both of them in the picture again. They were both early on, and then it seems like Aaron drops out of the text, and now we see both are, are identified here again. Then he summoned Moses and, and Aaron by night. It's interesting. Pharaoh's demeanor is one of panic and urgency. Pharaohs don't get up in the night. That's royalty. You don't disturb them at night. That's a no-no. He gets up and takes action. That's a sign of panic and urgency. Sovereigns never panic or are in a state of urgencies. Only the objects of creation are us. There is nothing God does out of panic or urgency. He is in control of it all. There's never a need for panic or urgency. This also demonstrates that, that Pharaoh is not sovereign. He says this, and then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, and we're going to see a series of commands, and we're going to see that there's, there's a series that, that the ESV and some of your other translations will, will translate in the same English words that are not the same Hebrew words. So let's follow this. He says, and this is a command, up! And then he says, go out! That's yatsah. That idea is to, to exodus, leave me. Isn't it interesting? Do you hear that command? Leave me, exodus, exit my presence. He's sending them out to the exodus. God uses the very enemy to accomplish his salvation of his people. And his, the commands, the words used of the enemy. And we continue on. And he, he says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. There we go. That's the halak. That's the temporary going. That's the going that has the idea of go but come back. Go and return. He's not using shalach, go and be gone. So let's continue on. He commands him to go. And then he says serve, which is ironic. He says serve and serve. And some of your, your Bible translations rightly put worship. Because serving in this context is go out to what you, do what you said you wanted to do from the beginning, which was go out and worship your God by way of feast in the wilderness. And now he's saying, go worship a God other than me. Ooh. Think about what he's saying. You can worship. He was the only one that was supposed to be worshiped in the sense of he was the hierarchy of the, he was at the top of the hierarchy of their pantheon of gods. So certainly that you could worship other gods, but they all came underneath his authority. He has the authority to, to keep ma'at. Ma'at was this harmony of peace. There's no harmony here. It's another way of God demonstrating absolute sovereignty over the, the situation that's going on. So he commands them to go worship Yahweh. By the way, it's the first time that Pharaoh uses the word Yahweh. Another way of showing Pharaoh. It's almost like he's schizophrenic. 
He's in this state of, of terror and of trying to hold on and grasp on. He's grasping on to anything. He's using thing, wording that even identifies rightly what he should identify, Yahweh. In the, when he first hears of him, when Moses and Aaron first come to him, he says, I don't even know him. I won't refer to him by the name you're doing. I don't even know him. What are you talking about? I'm not going to let you go out and, and worship this other god. And now he's using his name. We can see this has come full circle. Pharaoh knows who is sovereign, even if he is the enemy of God. He says this, and he continues on. He says, serve Yahweh as you have said. Take another command, your flocks and your herds, as you have said. And in the ESV, it says, be gone. I wish it didn't. I wish the... NIV and the NASB, would have, those are two different versions of the Bible. Those two translations, and when I say versions, that doesn't mean they're wrong. It means a set of human translators use their best understanding of this. I believe that it should be as the NIV and the NASB, he, they stick with go. Because begone gives the idea that he just used the verb that means be gone forever. He didn't use that. He used the verb that said be gone and come back. I, you're coming back. Really? Coming back? Oh, counterfeit sovereign? You think you can make that happen? But he, you can see he's holding on to this idea that he still is sovereign. He still has this ability to command. You got nothing in front of God. Your commands are, are weak. They are nothing. And he says this, and then this is the, 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 the manipulation you see of Pharaoh. And we see this. I don't know if you've ever had somebody who's been your boss that you recognize as a, a manipulator somebody who steps on people to go up the rung, somebody who really doesn't care about people, they care about themselves. People are only objects to obtain that which they want, their power, their authority, their limited sovereignty. Listen to what this great leader says. And bless, and it's emphasized in the Hebrew, bless me, not my nation, not my people, Bless me. In other words, make Yahweh stop. Implore Yahweh. Pray to him and make him stop so I don't lose my power. I don't lose my authority. I don't lose my kingdom. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. We see that, that, that clinging, that, that I can't lose this power, this position, this notoriety, this fame, this glory. I have to have it all. That's the heart of Pharaoh. So what's the big picture here? God not only, excuse me, God's not done sovereignly using difficult situations and even evil people to bring about the salvation of his people. God's not done applying his sovereignty in difficult situations and in the lives of evil people who are oppressing us to bring about salvation. Let me read to you Romans 8, 28, and 29. This is the context. Remember, we, this is physical salvation, which points to spiritual salvation that Jesus Christ accomplishes in the New Testament. We have to stay within the context of salvation when we're dealing with this sovereignty or we get goofy. So let's watch this. Romans 8, 28, and 29. If you, in fact, if you guys wouldn't mind, turn there, because I want to show you something. I just want to make sure you, you see this connection. Romans 8, 28, and 29. 
Most Christians know this one very well. It brings us very much comfort in our suffering. Most of you probably have some portion, if not all of these two verses, memorized. And if you don't, this one will, is worthy of a three-by-five card and stuck up on your mirror or your refrigerator and, 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 and be, as a reminder of this truth. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, in other words, believers, or the people that he covenanted with to save, those are one and the same, his family, those people who place their trust in him, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Does that mean everything is working for good for something that is, is outside of some, some category? What are, in other words, does everything work for good for just Pastor Pete was teaching on the difference of happiness and blessedness today? Does this just mean that God is working everything out so everything in our, in our lives is happy-go-lucky? No. We need to see the context of what the good is. So let's take a look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he made sure to say, hey, look, these people are people that have been called according to my purpose. These are my elect, my chosen ones. And he continues on, for those whom he foreknew, again, referencing that, 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 that understanding of election, those who he knew before time that even began, he also predestined, he predetermined, and this is the key. You could draw an arrow from good down to this phrase, starting with the word to, and then you would have the right context for good. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the salvation that God is bringing about sovereignly in our lives. In addition to our point-in-time justification, that, that which God did to regenerate our hearts, get us to a place where we now want to trust and believe, and we express our faith. The faith didn't save us in that sense. It was regeneration initiated by God. Our faith is, is evidencing what God has done in us. It's a gift that he has given us. And then it doesn't stop. So many Christians believe it stops. What do I do next? What am I supposed to do? What is God doing in my life? What is God doing in my life with this evil person or this difficult situation? Because I'm not tracking with you, God. Why would you do this? You already know I love you. Well, let's take a look at what he does here. We see that God is continuing salvation, but it is called a word that sometimes Christians don't associate with it. It's called sanctification salvation. Salvation has three components. Justification, point in time. Sanctification, life of the, of the believer. Glorification, death of the believer. We step into glory now finally made the holiness that the sanctification was bringing about in this process of making us holy. Justification point in time, sanctification, a process over your lifetime, glorification, once in heaven, you step into the glory. You are being glorified. So let's, let's see and bear this out. Just as Jesus led the Israelites out of, the, out of bondage to Pharaoh in the Exodus, and if you, if you notice I inserted the word Jesus, listen to last week's sermon. I'm not going to spend 60 minutes like I did last week going over that again. Uh, uh, let me continue on. Just as Jesus led the Israelites out of bondage to Pharaoh in the Exodus, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is leading his people out of the bondage to sin. Physical, spiritual. Physical, spiritual. Physical uh, points to, it's the, the shadow of the greater, the spiritual. Point number two, and we're going to end on the third point. Jesus' death on a cross paid the judgment we deserve. Justification, point in time, salvation. 
And through his resurrection, remember, he, he resurrected. What does that resurrected power mean? Does it just mean that, oh, yeah, that's the second part of what happened. I just remember that as a Christian, and that's my formula, and I get into heaven. No, we've got to understand what does that resurrection mean to us. It demonstrates his power, his sovereignty over death and sin. He is the God that continues to save us out of the practical sin we participate in every single week. Amen and amen. Jesus hasn't left us. He is this day still work at work sanctifying, that is, transforming us out of our practical, sinful lives into the image of his holiness. What an amazing God we have in Christ Jesus. And let me end with this takeaway, the takeaway that we talked about before. Let's see if we can put it all together and we understand it. We now have a bit greater grasp of it. The Lord's sovereignty is always in motion in your life. You might need a friend to show you in the midst of your hurt and your pain when you don't understand because suffering crushes you in the moment. You might need the love of someone else to help point, you, point it out to you what Christ is doing. But it's, the truth is, the Lord's sovereignty is always in motion in your life, practically bringing about salvation, that is, sanctifying you to conform you into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almost gracious good, abounding and steadfast love and mercy, Savior. We thank you. Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you that your son in the Old Testament, we see him bringing about salvation, the deliverance out of bondage of slavery. We see him do the same through his death and resurrection in the New Testament. And we understand the congruency, the the, the the connectedness of your truth and what you are doing and each person is doing in salvation. And then you give us the person of the Holy Spirit, often referred to as the Spirit of Christ, indwelling Spirit that doesn't leave us, but is the Spirit that transforms us. You are a good and gracious God. Remind us this week when we, when we forget you, when we go about the daily business and forget that you're using everything of that day to bring about our sanctification. Remind us in that moment of your work, of your sovereignty. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.